Let me give you a little background on me. Uh, that way you'll kind of think, okay, this is who this person is. I don't know hardly any of you, and so that's awesome. Uh, my name is Jason Epperson. Uh, I am f- first and foremost, like I I'm a, love Jesus like crazy. Uh, I was called to ministry, called into kind of this thing I do when I was 18 years old. Uh, I was looking at going to the University of Iowa or the University of Nebraska to play football. Uh, I was an 18-year-old getting ready, uh, just turned 18, getting ready to go into my senior year of high school and uh, was planning on going to one of those two places to play strong safety and uh, made a decision that summer that God had called me into something very different than going to play football and coaching and so made a pretty drastic turn in my life to basically say, I'm going to figure out how I can understand the most about Jesus and just declare him everywhere. And so... Uh, didn't go play football, went to a small private Bible college. I was there for four years. Uh, I, uh, after that, I worked for an organization called Christ and Youth, and I did two years of kind of international youth ministry. I traveled all over the world uh, doing youth ministry in different pockets. What they would do is they would literally fly me into a location. Uh, I would meet up with a missionary. I would meet up with a pastor in the area, and I would kind of work on youth ministry type stuff. We'd set something up over a month period of time, and then we'd set up kind of the boundaries of a trip. Then we would, I'd fly back and I would take a group of students, college students, high school students to that location and lead a trip during that time, if that makes sense. That's kind of what we did. And then when I was there, I did a lot of training and kind of just student ministry. It was something new. You guys know this. Anybody who's been living internationally, youth ministry is a new concept to the world, but the reality is most of the people they work with are people from the ages that are what we would call youth. Uh, youth ministry there is probably till they're 25 or 28. Here it's till they're 18 or 19, but it's it's the same same scope of life. And so after that, <clears throat> I went back, met my wife, got married, started living in Champaign, Illinois, Champaign-Urbana, uh, the University of Illinois. And that's actually one of the most, it is the highest percentage of international students of any university in the country. And uh, so I worked a lot with international students there as well as uh, athletes. I was the chaplain for the football and basketball teams for 10 years, seven years doing that. I was lived there for 10 and I was also a youth pastor and kind of teaching pastor in a church there. And then two years ago, a little over two years ago, I moved to Louisville, Kentucky. And since I've been here, I've been kind of the what they call next gen, but oversee all middle school, high school at Southeast across all campuses. And in the last year, I'm, now I oversee kind of all the ministries of Southeast Christian Church across all campuses. And I still preach to high school students. So that's kind of what I do. Uh, I've got an incredible wife, and her name is Lacey. And then I've got two boys, Abe and Bo. They're eight and five. Then I have a little daughter named Kate, and she's three. And so uh, that is the scope of kind of in a short little, this is kind of who's talking to you, I guess. And so I'm super passionate about students. Uh, I believe that Jesus teaches us from the very beginning of time that the greatest way to change the world is to gather youth. I, I believe that. I think that uh, I, I've always told my wife I will always be a youth pastor, even if someday I'm a senior pastor of a church, I will always have a group of high school or college students in my home on a weekly basis. Because uh, I truly believe that this, gen- this time frame of 14 to 24, uh, or however you describe it, is the most transformational time in students' lives. And I think no matter what country you're in, no matter where you're at, it's a season of their life where the rest of their life can change based on one decision. And I'm proof of that. Uh, I was on my way to play football. I was on my way to go into coaching or do whatever I could do, take that as far as possible. God got a hold of my life. A youth pastor got a hold of my life, shook some sense into me. Uh, and the next thing I know, the course of my life changed versus going to play football and getting beat up. I went into loving Jesus and getting fat. And so that's kind of <laughs> that's how my life changed. And so It's wonderful. No. Uh, and so... Um, what I'd like to kind of talk to you about first is uh, uh, my perspective, for sure, is from more of a church or programmatic perspective. Uh, and so I, I kind of want to just talk through for about 15 minutes kind of what we do to prepare students to be world changers. Does that make sense? I think I'm going to give you kind of that perspective. My guess is all of you are connected to some form of church home. And so for me to give you that perspective first, for you to kind of see this is what uh, we do or Jason does or this church now does to prepare for when a kid is 14 years old till a kid leaves this place or goes off into college. This is what we try to do to prepare them to be Christ followers who are ready to change the world, not just kids who want to sit and listen and go to church. Come on in, guys. You're great. You're not – actually, we started way early, but you are a little late. It's okay, though. <laughs> no, you're great. I'm just kidding. No, you're good. You're good. 
So, uh, perfect. And so my name is Jason. That's all I need to know. We're going to get rolling. So, uh, and so I'll just kind of do that. And then what I'd like to do, honestly, is all of you came in here because the description of the class was a little bit vague. My guess is with very different expectations of what you wanted. And so I want to leave at least half the class for you to be able to ask questions. Uh, and then I'll field those questions. I'll try to answer them as quick as I possibly can. And that way we can kind of move through if there's like, hey, I've got this situation. Or I always wondered this about this generation. Uh, I'd love to talk about that kind of stuff with you. Uh, but I think probably the area that I have what they would call an expertise, if that makes sense, is kind of how to develop a 14-year-old who is willing uh, into a 24-year-old who's transforming the world somewhere else. Uh, I'll give you one story before we start. Her name was Megan. Uh, Megan was a prototypical 14-year-old girl. Uh, her mom and dad had just split up. Uh, she was the girl that was standing on the edge of her uh, stairway when her dad had a bag at the door. And she cried out to her dad, Dad, don't leave. And her dad looked at her uh, like lots of dads have done over time and just kind of said back to her, Hey, I don't need this guilt trip like your mom gives me. I'll see you later. And walked out the door. Uh, most 14-year-old girls at that point would turn and look for affection and love anywhere they can find it. We got real lucky or real blessed with Megan. Uh, she showed up to an after-school dodgeball tournament at our church randomly when she was 14 years old. It happened on a Friday when her dad left. She showed up on a Wednesday, and ultimately she found love and affection uh, from men and women who were older than her, uh, and she just clinged to the church, and she fell in love with the church, and ultimately she fell in love with us way before she fell in love with Jesus. Uh, but then she, eventually she fell in love with Jesus. And Megan then went through middle school and introduced every single person she knew to Christ. I mean, she baptized more students and introduced them to Christ than any student I've ever met. Uh, she was a, a girl that consistently had a picture of what she wanted in a husband, and that picture was not drawn from her father because she saw that brokenness. Uh, and so she just built a picture based on who Jesus was. And so she goes through high school, and doesn't mean her senior year, I remember her prom or senior year, uh, I tried to be kind of like, uh, a dad of some sorts. I was only 26 at the time. And uh, I remember being at her house and my wife doing her hair and her mom being there. And she had this stepdad that was pretty lame. He didn't last real long. Uh, but he was a good guy-ish. And so he was there too. And I remember, I'll never forget, when she came walking down those stairs and there was this like, you know, hunk of burning love with his tuxedo on, his corsage that he was about to pin, like, brute, you know, mutilate her dress with. And and I remember her walking down those steps and her eyes welling with tears. And the reality was, though, Megan didn't care who was at the bottom of those steps because the one person she wanted to see wasn't there. It was her dad. Uh, she was hurting. And no matter how much she fell in love with Jesus, there was a brokenness and, and a, a desire to be known by the one man that should know her. Uh, cool thing is, Megan made a decision uh, to be a missionary. She wanted to go to places that the gospel had not necessarily been or the gospel was not doing real well in. Uh, her mom and dad would not pay for an education uh, that had any any like tilt towards anything with Jesus, but she still made a decision that she wanted to do that. Uh, Megan now is in Japan. Uh, she has planted her second church in Japan. She's a part of a church planting organization called Mustard Seed, and they're planting churches all over Japan. And uh, she's married. She has two children, and she is changing the world for Jesus. Uh, and I just think I have got uh, hundred over a hundred stories of students that I've seen God transform, that I've just had the opportunity to be like in the cheap seats. You know what I mean? Like just cheering them on and watching God move them. And I'm just going to take you through kind of what I would say, if there was any thought process that went into it, which there was, this is kind of what Megan walked through in a church. Does that make sense? And so uh, there's a lot of things that are kind of givens that I'm not going to necessarily dive into. Uh, the first, I would say, given is just the spiritual formation process of a student. Uh, that's unfortunately not a given because most people have never been spiritually formatted. Uh, but I just think I'm going to try to talk about that as I go. But since this is a missions conversation, I'll try to focus on missions things. Is that okay? And so the first thing that we do, and, and I would never, well, this was never presented to a student. Does that make sense? Can you guys see this board a little bit? Uh, this was never presented to a student. This was uh, presented to our adult leaders. Here it was presented to our staff the first day I showed up. But basically, it's kind of a progression, or uh, for those of you who are in business, it's like an assimilation process. 
to, to move students in the direction that we think they're going to be able to be transformed at the greatest capacity by who Jesus is. Okay? For instance, uh, some of you have taken students on different missions trips, which is incredible. Uh, what I would say to you as students is this generation learns through experiences. They don't learn through outlines. They don't learn through presentations. Uh, they're an absolutely experiential-based learning people. Uh, the, un- the beauty of that is when they have a positive experience, it truly can change the course of their life. The weakness is this. This is what you have to watch. They will grab experiences in different places, put them all together for one thought process, and the thought process is incredibly broken. Uh, for instance, we've never had a generation before that cares more about social justice issues. That's a beautiful thing. It, it is like one of my favorite things about this generation. The hard thing is the social justice issues they care about are truly the social justice issues that a culture cares about. It's not the social justice issues that Jesus cares about. Why? Because they grab things from different places. I would kind of like, and this is not a critique of any people, but it would, to me it's kind of like an Oprah Winfrey-based theology. It's I'm going to pull this from here. I'm going to pull this from here. I'm going to pull this from here. Because all these things feel right, and the experience I have with them are right, and you put them into one thought process, but that thought process then is incredibly broken. Does that make sense? And so it's our job then to give them experiences and teach them as they go to develop good, sound thinking. Uh, for me, they're brilliant students, uh, some of, and they're willing to do whatever God calls them to do. Uh, we just have to help shape what we're calling them to do, what God's calling them to do. Does that make sense? Okay, now I'm going to dive into this. What we do, like middle school student, 14-year-old student, uh, if I think if you took a 14-year-old student and dropped them and they've never had any service experience or missions experience and you dropped them in the heart of India, uh, that'll be an experience. Uh, but it'll not be an experience that they can process. It's not going to be an experience that they can translate. It's not going to be an experience that they'll get the most from. Uh, that's probably my biggest knock on short-term missions, to be honest. We, we spend more on short-term missions than we spend on like real missions dollars. And that's a problem within our culture. And so, uh, and I, that's coming from a youth pastor. And so, and we're like the most guilty people in the world of doing short-term missions. And so, what I want to show you is kind of how we have shaped what we do within missions to prepare students that I think is not like uh, taking advantage of resources. The first is this. We do like one-day service projects. Just one day. Uh, with every student who comes in our ministry, our goal, uh, so like at Southeast Christian Church, with all of our middle school and high school students, our goal is that every student who comes to this church will do at least a one-day service project. They will come into something that we do. We'll do a one-day service project. We do it through our group space ministry um, because we have too many students in our worship gatherings to be able to, to do it. And so every student who's connected to a group, they do a one-day service project or a one-day evening service project twice a semester with their group leaders. Does that make sense? Now, the reason I say service project versus one-day missions trip is I think there's a big difference between a service project and a missions trip. Uh, To me, a missions trip is centered around a mission. Uh, And that mission is the mission of God. And a service project is centered around service, which is also part of the mission of God. But a missions trip is centered around missionary. Service project is is around, we're going to help this person out. Does that make sense, the difference? And I think it's crucial to define the differences for students because... Uh, it matters. So we do a one-day trip. Within those things, we still, uh, what's part of this generation that really matters to them more than serving? The relationships. So we try to have the same, we try to go to the same places every single week. We have one adult that goes to, we have one adult that every single Wednesday is there to greet our students. And it's the same group of people we're working with, but it's a different group of 20 students every week. But it allows there to be some common relationship. We have one adult, so it would be like if you were part of our youth team, you would meet them every single Wednesday no matter what the group of students is. Uh, you meet them in the same location on a Wednesday, and so you're the common denominator within the service project. And so when you show up, those students know you. They trust you, the students that we're serving with, if that makes sense, or the students we're serving or the people we're serving. So their ability to latch on to a random student who they've never seen before is greater because there's a trust with you. Uh, if you bring in a new group of people and there's no common people every week, you'll spend the first half of a day trying to just build a relationship to do anything. But if there's one common person uh, to be, hey, you can trust this person, the trust happens much quicker. So that's what we found. So we do one day. Uh, to me, you can't introduce a student to the mission of God if they don't understand service. I just think 
I think that they're in a church setting. We call people to mission all the time. The problem is you can't skip over service because service teaches you about sacrifice. And you can't do mission without sacrifice. It's impossible. Okay? Make sense? So the next thing that we do is after a one-day type things is uh, we also – these are like cords everywhere attached to me. It's just crazy. And so is we'll do two- to four-day service trips again. So if you notice, our first two – Rungs that we do with students are service-based. We still want 100% of our students to do these first two things. Not every student you have truly wants to live. Uh, I think all students need, I should say this, if a person doesn't have a heart for the world, they either don't know Jesus or they're ignorant of his calling. So when you're in a church, it's like, I just don't have a heart for the world. Let me tell you who Jesus is. Because if you don't, if if you love Jesus, you have to have a heart for the nations. You have to. Uh, if if you don't have a heart for the nations, then honestly, you don't you don't know him, or you're ignorant of who he is. Does that make sense? And so to me, but that doesn't mean that God calls all of them to go. That's okay. Uh, there needs to be lots of different people on this support ladder that we call kind of global transformation. And so for us, those first two things are things we challenge every student to do. These two to four day things would be experiences like this. Like we will, uh, there's a place in Louisville, it's called Refuge. And so what we do is we have students come down, they stay, usually we try to keep this between 20 and 30 students. We never try to have more than 30 students on a service project with our adults because then we lose the discipleship ability. Like putting 100 kids in one location then painting a, a shed is an experience, but there's, you can't teach a kid when there's one on a hundred. And so we try to keep our ratios like one to four, like one adult per four students. So they are working with an adult. The age brackets, best case scenario, is all ages. In our home groups, we try to have, in our service project groups, we try to have someone under the age of 40 and someone over the age of 40 with every group of students because we're preparing them for life. We're not preparing them for college. Uh, it's way easier un- to find a 22-year-old to go with you to do things because they miss youth ministry. Uh, but the truth is the generation that offers the most of them are the people over the age of 65 because they can actually teach them about life. Uh, a 22-year-old can teach them, hey, you shouldn't drink that. You know, that's all they really got. And so <laughs> it's great. I'm 37 and I don't got that much. And so, uh, But I realize that, and so you surround yourself with people with wisdom. And so... Uh, that's the two to four day things with middle school students. That's as far as we go with middle school students. Uh, that's as far as we go with kind of that 14, 15 year old age bracket. That is not to say if you have a 14 or 15 year old, that's your child that's experienced tons of service that they can't have an international experience and it'd be positive. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying on a large scale program wise, what we're saying is by the time we have an eighth grader who leaves eighth grade, we want them to have both of these experiences along with all the other stuff we do in youth ministry. Does that make sense? Okay. The next thing that we do then is we do week-long what I would call mission trips. Uh, and that, and actually it's more like seven to ten days. Uh, this, this summer, for instance, at Southeast, uh, we are taking ten uh, seven to ten day trips uh, all over the world uh, teaching kids about how to live out the mission of God in different cultures. Uh, now, here's the thing is, every single person we partner with are partners from our church. Let me explain why that matters. Uh, the reason it matters so much is what lots of churches do is each church has its own missions philosophy. Right or wrong, they have it. Okay, And that's a good thing. They should. And with that missions philosophy... Uh, if you are raising up a generation that doesn't fit the mission's philosophy of your church, you are breaking down a system before it even has a start. Has a start. So, for instance, if we are saying, I'm going to take uh, a group of set students on a 7- to 10-day trip and do this incredibly cool missions exp- experience, missions trip, but it doesn't fit the mission's philosophy, what's going to happen to those 10 to 20 students that have that experience? You fall in love with what? The missionary, you fall in love with the pastor from that country, and you fall in love with that work that they're doing, which is awesome. That's what we want to have happen. But if that is outside of the philosophy of your church, then when you're a student, then the two, three, or four students who then decide we want to do this, then there's this angst between the church and those students of how they're going to gain support. Does that make sense? And so we try to help them uh, 
be a part of good missions, not good, the missions philosophy of the church that we are part of. It's To me, it's like my part of my submission to the authority of the elders of this church is having them gain experiences that the elders and the missions committees of this church find as the best. Okay, That is not to say globally they're the best, but they're the ones that have been chosen. Any of you who are leaders in churches recognize there are thousands of requests that come in every year to be a part of different missions things. And for a church to say this is what we want to target, that's okay for a church to say that. And so that's what I'm kind of saying. We try to bring those two together. One to four ratio, still the same. Everything we do in youth ministry, we try to have a one to four ratio. I know it sounds crazy, but it's true. We bring 1,200 high school students to the beach in Panama City for a week. We have a one to four ratio adult to student. Sometimes it slips one to five or one to six, but it's pretty close to being one to four. And the reason that is, is our purpose in working with students is to disciple them. Disciples who make disciples. You cannot, this is like, this class, if it would just be the three of us, we actually could create some equipping. I could help equip you to be better youth leaders. But this room right now is absolutely me. I'm just giving you information. There will be no equipping that happens, possibly if you ask the right question, and I can give the right answer, a little bit of equipping, but ultimately equipping only happens on a small scale. And what we're doing, in, they're never going to be equipped to do global missions like transformational stuff if it doesn't happen in this format, because it's not happening in their school systems. I don't care if they go to Christian school or non-Christian school. That's not what the school is purposed for. It's what we're purposed for. We are purposed for disciples to make disciples. That's our calling. Uh, it's funny, as a youth pastor, when I first started, I wanted to create leaders. And then I realized really quickly, you know, Jesus never told me to do that. And so I like could take that burden off me. Because the truth is, there's a lot of people that have never, they're not called to be leaders. They may be called to lead their home or called to lead in some level of workplace but I was trying to raise up global leaders. And I recognized really quickly, I might have work with two of those in my life. But God has called me to disciple every single student that comes into our path. You know, Ephesus was not changed because of a global leader, Paul. It was changed because of the faithfulness of uh, shopkeepers who had their lives transformed to Jesus who weren't the global leaders of a community, but they were the global leader, they were the leaders of their family. And then because of that, Ephesus was changed from 0% to 98%. You know what I mean? That's how transformation happens. And so disciple making is a big deal. So seven to day, ten day trips, we used to do those with missions partners. Okay? Uh, the reason we do seven to ten days is because they just barely start to experience some form of like culture shock. Just barely. And and the truth is is when we're trying to do this with like 70% of our students, uh, 70% of our students are going to come into culture shock, and you're going to recognize as their leader, oh, this is not healthy. Like this person is not ready for the next the next thing we're going to call them to. Uh, and the next thing that we call them to is really these 16 to 20-day trips. Uh, and with those, I'm going to be honest, if a student doesn't desire, and this would be mission trip as well. Now, they're going to do service as they do these things. Uh, but the centerpiece of it is is we are doing service to build a relationship to show someone Jesus. Does that make sense? That's the purpose behind it. And so uh, that's the 16 to 20 day things. For me, this is probably only a student who you see uh, and they see I'm interested in doing this full time. Uh, or a student that feels like I think I want to be a part of being an elder in a church, that's when you're seeing the people that kind of like, I want to be a part of this missions movement. I'm just not sure where my place is yet. Versus at this level, it's like, that was an awesome experience. That changed my life. I will support missions. But I don't know if I need any other cross-cultural experiences. And this is what happens is most of the time then we take this person on the same trip for six straight years. And I just, I'm going to be honest, I just think that's a waste of kingdom dollars. I think that there's those kingdom. Every dollar that we have and every person we have is a resource God has entrusted to us to leverage for greatest kingdom value. Uh, now, what we do is the first trip, uh, if they need help fundraising, we'll help them a ton. But once they want to do it again, that we won't we won't even allow them to fundraise to do the same trip. They have to earn the money themselves. And if they don't do that, that's great. We let them do that. Um, but we won't allow them to fundraise to do the same thing over and over again. They have to raise that. I mean, they have to like earn that money on their own. Does that make sense? Okay. The last thing that we do, uh, and this is something that uh, before I came to Southeast, I had to create this on my own. Here it's called MI2. 
And basically, it's a missions internship. Uh, do I think uh, it, it's a 60-day process, 60 to 90-day process, where we put them uh, in the heart of living? They're usually one or two or three of them are together. Uh, but when you have the 16 to 20 day, for those of you who have been on internationally that long, you're going to go through culture shock. You're going to come out on the other end of it and be pretty happy, and you're going to be okay. Uh, but you're not going to get to a place of culture fatigue. Okay? This experience, you'll experience culture fatigue. Uh, being on the dirt in a different place, not knowing the language, you're going to get to a point where, like, you hate your life, you don't know what you're going to do, and then you come out of it, and you're going to recognize, can I truly, this is the person that's saying, can I truly do this the rest of my life? Can I be one of those who go? Uh, or is God calling me to be a pastor of a church to create a global movement from Burlington, Iowa, or from you know Cedar Rapids, or from... Uh, West Monroe, or does that make sense? Like, I think those are also, like, I had those experiences. I am not a missionary in a foreign country, but because of that, I'm a youth pastor who actually cares. Uh, most youth pastors just want to have a better light show and a cooler guitar. Uh, and the truth is, is that's why, but if you want to be a part of transformational youth ministry, that's not how it happens. Uh, and so that's kind of what we do to prepare students in the missional, like, Walk. The phrase that we use all the time, and this is super simple, and I'm just going to be honest, I'm not real smart, and so we use it as just called next. We do not say, hey, you're next. We don't say, hey, we need to challenge you for this. We don't ever present this stuff in this order. Does that make sense? But we will say to a student, before they go on a 7 to 10 day wishing trip, they've had to have one of these experiences. Because we want them to be able to have the real experience. Uh, We know, if we're taking them here, that we can trust them because we've seen them operate in this venue. And the the most dangerous thing you'll ever do with a student is take them to a cross-cultural setting. And that could be inner city. But that's the most dangerous thing we ever do. Uh, The transportation itself, it's the most dangerous stuff that we do. And so uh, for us, it's like it's just good stewardship to have, it sounds awful to use this phrase, but almost like a vetting of like working them through a process of recognizing they are ready for this, they can attach this. It's like for me, I had a student who just wanted so bad uh, to go to spend time in West Africa. And I remember saying to this girl, uh, uh, or actually it wasn't West Africa, she wanted to go to India. And I said, let's have a couple different, you need to do a local service trip. Okay, fine. Uh, But I know God's called me here. Okay, I, I believe you. But let's prepare you for that experience. Because I knew if the first thing she ever did was show up in India and she saw the way that men and women interact and she saw the way that people lived and she saw like death poverty on the side of the road and she saw all the darkness of like this this culture that's represented and all the beauty. It's, it's, there's a beautiful culture there too. She would have no ability to process that information. And so because of that, she wouldn't benefit from it. And so it's my job as a steward of her to help create in her the ability that when she walks in that culture to be sticky, to like be able to grab a hold of the things. And that is through the process of giving her different experiences to attach it to. Even me, uh, the first time I was there, I was 30 years old. I'd been to every continent in the world. I'd been to tons of different countries. I still have places that I've been in the world that I still can't process. I mean, all of you have probably had those. It's like I, I have convictions in different places. I don't even know how that conviction relates to Louisville, Kentucky. Uh, but for a student, we've got to do everything we can to prepare them for those battles. Does that make sense? Okay. That's kind of a church plan. Uh, and I, I kind of wanted to show you that. Now I've got, we've got 30 minutes left, and I'm willing to talk about anything else you want to talk about. But that's the area if you're saying, Jason, what do you know that you've done that really works? I want you to trust me on this. I have been able to see hundreds of students. Uh, thousands of students be transformed by who Jesus is through the spiritual formation process as well as our missional-like formation process that we walk the students through. Uh, but I, I have the opportunity to be able to call every single Christmas on my Christmas tree, it be filled with students that are part of global change. And there's no greater fruit in my life than that. Like, it's just incredible. It's, it's every night to go to bed and to pray for kids. Uh, that you remember the day their dad walked away, that now are comforting a culture 
and it's just, y'all, uh, the church is missing the boat. We are calling people to something that God never called them to. God did not call them to sit and listen. He called them to go and make. Uh, but if we don't model that, and if we're not strategic in that, y'all, that it's strategy. Jesus had strategy. And to me, the strategy is continually moving them forward so that they can eventually then move themselves forward. And so uh, it just really matters. And so any questions you have about uh, this generation, it could be about like students and missions experiences. It could be about how did you do this. Uh, I just want to give you guys time to ask questions. If you don't have more, like if you have no questions, I'll talk about other things within missions. I can do that. Yeah. Yeah. Children. And, and in the culture of most churches, yeah. the whole responsibility of the spiritual formation yeah. of our children is placed on the youth pastor. Yeah, absolutely. And how do you actually logistically garner your army of adults? Yeah, for me, uh, it's funny. People think in a larger setting that that would be easier. And honestly, I would say I've worked – this is the size of churches I've worked in. The first church I worked in was a church of 30. Uh, when we when I first got there, there was four students in the youth ministry. I was there a year, and it was my senior year in college. <clears throat> when we left, there was 65 students in the youth ministry and 30 adults in the church. So I didn't even have the ratio present, you know. Like, and a lot of the 30 adults were adults that were angry that there was 60 kids running around <laughs> screwing up their hymns on Sunday. So. So what I did is I found the most dynamic Christian leaders in the community to partner with us. Uh, and to me, I am—I make no bones about it. The most transformational thing your church will ever do is raising up a generation of kids. It is, it is, there is no doubt it is what every generation is called to. And as soon as a generation forgets that calling, they lose their mojo, they lose their swagger, and they get cranky, and they get critical, and then they just are... Life's just no good. But if you can continue to point a generation back down to a younger generation that needs them desperately, it's a big deal. So one thing that I would do is I camped out on Sunday mornings and hung out with adults. Here's the one positive I have that some youth pastors don't. I can preach. So because of that, in every setting I've been in, they've put me on a stage to preach. So because of that, adults are somewhat drawn to preacher. I'm going to be honest. So like it's been easier for me because of that. So then when I walk off that stage, man, Jason, that, that message was whatever – awful or powerful, depending on the message, then my next comment is, hey, you need to work with students. Uh, I don't like, I don't, I don't want to teach kids. I don't want you to teach kids. I want you to love kids. Kids don't need another teacher. That's the problem is you're looking for people who can teach them. Don't look for people who can teach them. They don't need to teach them. They just need to love them. They need to be present because no one else in their world is present. And so I recruit the tar out of it. Uh, here at this church here, it's, it's actually way harder to be honest, because I have no contact with an adult world. Uh, my contact with the adult world is an occasional announcement that I give on a stage, uh, but I have zero contact. But just so you know, in this church here, we have got we have uh, 45 different homes all over our. That's not true. 50, 50 some homes all over our city. Anywhere from two, 20 to 50 students gathering in those homes, and a one to four ratio of adults in those homes. And it's all led by adults. Not one youth pastor leads a home. And the, the way it is, is I think that most people in your church, men and women, like leaders in your church, are wanting a real challenge. The highest capacity of leadership we offer in most churches is, will you serve communion this week? Sweet. Or, man, can you be an usher? Which, all those things are incredibly important. But wouldn't you like someone to stare you in the eye as a 25-year-old and just say, Hey, bro, I need you to help transform the lives of a group of 16, 17, and 18-year-olds and journey with them and love them and recruit other adults to do the same thing. So, oh, yeah, I can do that. If you raise the bar of what you're asking them to do, you'll be surprised at who shows up. Right now, a youth leader means someone who cooks hot dogs. We don't even call them youth leaders. We call them volunteers or sponsors. I would change the whole language that you have. I would say, you're a youth pastor. We have... Over 175 youth pastors at Southeast Christian Church, and none of them are paid. But they're youth pastors. When they come up on our stage, hey, this is the youth pastor in the Bromley home. This is the youth pastor in the Cheek home. Does that make sense? And so 
I would just elevate it. And part of your job as a youth, a, a youth minister, a, the best youth minister in the country, maybe can lead 100 students to 150 students. The best. You look across this country at the largest youth ministries in our country, no matter what side of the church, most of them range between 75 and 150. Because a youth pastor hasn't been willing to let go of himself enough to sacrifice his time with students to raise up a generation of adults to engage them and actually see God do multiplication work. Discipleship happens through multiplication. It doesn't happen through large crowds. And so that's what I would do. I would just recruit like crazy. I know that sounds simple, but it's like get on the phone uh, and recruit, recruit, recruit. And when it's a missions trip or it's like this, I would have – your adults need to be – if I'm the senior pastor of a church, guess what every adult in our church is going to do? This. Why wouldn't every single adult in the church do a one-day service project? Why wouldn't every single adult in our church be challenged to get away from their own world for two to four days and do a service project? Why wouldn't 70% of our adults be challenged to get out of this country for seven to ten days and have a missions experience in a cross-cultural settings? And then if you think, man, this person wants – there's a lot of adults in the churches I've been to that have been called into missions through, an, to, through that. I mean, it happens all the time. But you have to have a strategy for it. Well, then guess what happens is as soon as the adults in your church who care about missions know there's a youth ministry that cares about missions, guess where they're going to serve? With students. But most people who care about missions don't want a light show every week. And they're frustrated by this. But the truth is both of those go together. We do the most attractional high school worship service in the country. But guess what? We do discipleship and we do missions is the the backbone of who we are. So that's what I would do. I would recruit like crazy. I would tell your youth pastor, why don't you spend five to ten hours a week recruiting? Every week. I used to cast a vision on in, in October, November, December, and January were the months that I would talk to every adult that I thought had the ability. Have you ever thought about being a high school youth leader? I'm going to come back in two months. I'm going to pray for you. And I had a list in my office of the people I was praying for because I knew God would move them to that direction if they, if they loved Jesus. If he didn't move them that way, then I didn't really care if they were or not. It's okay with me. But then you come back to them in February and say, hey, here's the trip I need you to go on. And before that, what would you do this service trip with us? And you just raise them up. Uh, but you've got to spend as much time raising up adults as you do students because you've got to have a team of people who can cultivate it. So, yep. Yep. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, we do. We have a, t- a training process, and uh, a lot of our training process now is if you're a home leader, it's your job then to train the leaders that come into your home. Uh, so we spend a lot of time training that first group of leaders, uh, but we can't train. I can't train 100 new leaders every year. It's impossible for me to do that. So when they come into a home, their job is basically to be submissive to the home leader. It'd be the same on a missions trip. Uh, if you're going to go lead a missions trip with me, my job on that trip is not only to equip these students, but to equip you so that next year you can lead your own trip, and there'll be another rookie that comes alongside that you can equip to lead that same trip. So that's how we do kind of our training process. But here's the deal. Uh, honestly, discipleship is not rocket science. Love. If you find someone who's willing to love someone else, y'all, that's discipleship. Discipleship is not part of discipleship is teaching them the word of God. But discipleship is not listening to someone teach by Jesus. That's not discipleship. That's teaching. That's part of the apostles' teachings. Walking with someone as they live, as they move, as they breathe, as a student is struggling with this, as an adult is struggling with this, that's discipleship. It's equipping. Uh, And it's journeying them through the aspect of they finally realize, oh, I should be doing this. And the next thing you know, you're multiplying people that have a heart for the right things. Good. Yep. Would you, from your experience, talk to, them, to the millennials? Um, this generation is open to mentors, and 50 percent of them have already put life mentors, yeah. not just career mentors. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it does. It's. I got lucky. I'm not real smart. A lot of mine is like dumb luck. And I also follow the spirit. Actually, that's what it is. It's funny. Every time I go and listen to someone talk about millennials, like, oh, wow. I was doing the right thing. You know, it's like, because the Spirit of God is going to direct you to do the right things if you listen to the Spirit of God. And so for me, <clears throat> this generation, more than any other generation, and it's the same as me. Like, I'm not a part of the generation, but I'm close. And they want so badly to, for someone to journey with them. Because their parents have been so busy. Their parents have flaked out. Uh, or maybe their parents are great, and they still want someone to journey with them. So for us, I think one other thing that we do that's not a part of this but it's a part of Parent for Life is we try to find businessmen and women 
uh, in our city that when we know we have a college student that's interested in uh, being in business, we connect them to Bill Clark, who's the, C- who's the executive of Louisville Slugger, and say, Bill, would you meet with this person twice a month? And Bill's like, I would love that. Like, but creating mentorships with people who have a heart for the right things is crucial. And so they're super open to it. Why are they open to it? Because they're open to this experience. Experience drives the culture. Yeah, but ex- relationships are an experience to them. The funny thing is, is them walking into a classroom listening to someone talk, they don't value that as an experience because it's not relational. Uh, for them to be in this room, the only reason they would want to be in this room is if they had they knew someone who knew me or they're in this room and they I said something that attached to them relationally. As a, as a communicator, for instance, you watched when I first started talking, I gave them relational stories about me. I started this whole lesson with a story about a girl named Megan who lost her dad. And because she lost her dad and then she became, she became a missionary, that was a relational story, not for your generation. That was a nice story for you. But you came here. Yeah, that's right. So, <laughs> but, but the truth is, is that allows a generation to recognize, oh, he, he cares about that person versus just, because the, diff, the breakdown of the generations is they don't see the value systems of the other generation. The truth is the two generations that are the most similar are people over the age of 70, people under the age of 30. They're way more similar. Uh, it's funny in churches they think that they're the most opposite, but it's the 40 and 50 year olds incredibly selfish people that are getting in the way of us really doing something. So uh, that's Charlie. That's why I had to. So, anyway. Good. Go ahead. Um, I was a youth leader in our church. We have a small church, 160, mm-hmm. in a relatively small, smaller town. And uh, I was youth leader for seven years in the 90s. My husband's an elder there. We've been a part of this church 32 years. Oh, wow. And um, and I had I can't think of any major issues that I ever had to deal with in the 90s with this youth group. All mm-hmm. my youth were, I think, from two-parent homes. Yep. No divorce. Yep. Um, and, the, and the parents dealt with their kids yeah. concerning different issues. Plus, we didn't have a lot of the social media going on. I don't think... Nobody had a cell phone in my youth group. Okay, I step out, and my other daughter, this is one daughter who's a youth leader now, uh, but my other daughter was in youth ministry in her church for six years. Terrible, terrible experience. Yeah. Uh, I'll tell you why. (laughs) Um, She just left in June, broken, burned out. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, our our pastor. You're okay. That had come into our church, six kids. His kids are the worst. Yeah. And my husband, and, as an elder, and I, I love our church. Yeah. Um, have talked to him about his kids. Yeah. They're influencing in very bad things. Yeah. Perverted things. Sexually perverted things. Yeah. Affecting. It's affecting our whole youth group of about 20. Yeah. Now. She's in the middle of it. She's tried to correct. Yeah. Reprove his kids. She's it turned back on her, her fault. You yeah. did the wrong thing. Mm-hmm. Um, my husband, and, as an elder, and I went in. This past summer, tried bring correction, reproof. Yeah. Was turned back on my husband. Um, just pointed at the finger at him. Yeah. Um, it, it was terrible. So we felt like we were shut down after being a part of this church. For, yeah, for a long time. And involved. And um, um, my husband has. And I, our whole family does. Yeah. Been on the mission trips with these kids. Yeah. Every week, kids at our house. Yeah. My husband mentoring six or seven of the boys. That's awesome. Feeding them breakfast. Yeah. Feeding them supper. He loves to cook. Taking them out to eat. My name is Jason. Off. Love to meet your husband. Actually. <laughs> <laughs> Developing relationships. I'm a, I'm a coach. I coach track in a yeah. high school. I'm involved in girls and the guys' lives, and I I foresee 
Um, I get to Louisville to get away. Yeah. It's so intense. I, my husband calls me as soon as I get to here. Yeah. This conference and says, one of the parents of the youth approached me and said that he discovered a lot of sexually perverted uh, messages on his son and daughter's phone. Yeah. And um, and he and he goes, it's the whole youth group. Yeah. And um, so my question is, I feel like our hands are tied. Yeah. Good question. I mean, there's a lot of questions in there. Uh, this is what I would say at first is, uh, love it. You're already doing the right thing by loving those kids. I think the first thing is if you feel like, though, that a parent is not responsive to the direction that you're giving them as a youth leader, whether it's a senior pastor, whether it's an elder's kids, whether it's whatever, uh, you've done what you can do to rebuke that situation. Uh, here's the one thing, and this is going to sound crazy. Uh, these things are some of the greatest. It's the greatest tool I've ever had in ministry. It really is. Technology, I mean, I can send hundreds of text messages and connect to students like I've never been able to connect to them before. But it is also the greatest, like, demonizer, like, awful thing that happens within our – it's within our whole culture. Uh, and so I think one thing is the same types of things were happening in the 90s. Uh, we just didn't have record on our phones. Uh, and so I think in some ways that doesn't make it right. That doesn't mean it shouldn't be fixed. But I do think as a parent, sometimes you have to take a step back and recognize. Uh, and so instead of a kid getting a magazine, instead of a kid talking dirty to a girl or getting in the back seat with her or getting in a basement, does that make sense? Now this happens via the phone and a parent can see it. And so it, it does create a major level of angst. And it's not right. It's still sinful. It still needs to be confronted. But I think sometimes as a parent, as a youth leader, you have to take a step back and recognize this is a major deal. But it's, it's no more major than it actually happening in the backseat of a car. In fact, it's probably less major than it happening actually in the backseat of a car. And so I just think to gain perspective on it will help a little bit. But the second thing is, is uh, when you're building relationships with these students, the, the easiest way to help a student through a major issue is you've got to give them perspective. Uh, in that moment, it's like me. Uh, we're all the same. If we don't have perspective of the end goal, so this is what I would do with all the girls in youth ministry. I would have your husband because they like him because he cooks and he's nice. Uh, I would have him. I would have your husband and you take all the girls out, and I would take them to a bridal shop. And I'd walk into the bridal shop, and I would talk to them beforehand and say, all these girls are going to try on wedding dresses, and my husband's going to sit there, and he's going to take pictures of them. He's going to tell them how beautiful they look. I want to tell them how beautiful they look. And after they try, at first they're going to be like, this is kind of cheesy. But by the end of it, they're going to be like, this is awesome. This is the greatest youth night ever. And then... <laughs> You're going to take pictures of them, and then afterwards you're going to take those pictures of them. You're going to hand them those pictures because you're going to get them developed on the spot because you can do that now. It's really cool. And you're going to hand them to them, and then on the back of those pictures, you're going to make a list of the ten things they desire to have in a husband. And the ten things they desire in a husband are going to be a lot of the characteristics that your husband is showing them and who Jesus is to them, or maybe if they have a great father. And if they don't, they're going to write these things down. And, and some of the questions, are you going to want them to be a Christian? Yes. Are you going to want them to do this? Then... After those ten things are done, you're going to look at these girls and say, what are you doing today to prepare yourself for that man? They have to gain perspective. Because right now, all they see and all they hear is the, the moment. The, their the weaknesses is relationally they want to please the people around them. So if you can change that to relationally wanting to please the one that ultimately they're going to be with and accountable to, you can do that. It can shift. Uh, the students that walk through that time of life not dealing with some of those things are students that have a, have a big picture perspective. They can say, well, if I'm doing this, this, and this, it doesn't prepare me because this guy doesn't want me sexting and taking naked pictures of myself and doing those things. They don't want me doing that, and I wouldn't want them doing that, so therefore I will not do that because I'm preparing myself for this. And if that never happens, you're preparing yourself for Jesus, ultimately. With guys, I would do the same thing. I'd sit them in a circle. I wouldn't have them try on bridal dresses. <laughs> Uh, and I wouldn't make them try on tuxedos. But I would take the fellows out. I would do a guy's night out. I would do a trip. I would do a two- to four-day trip to the Boundary Waters. I would do something with them and sit down and say, fellows, what do you want in this woman you're going to be with? Or who do you want to be as a man? Who do you want to be as a father? Tell me the failings of this. And give them a perspective. The reason people perish is because they don't have a vision. Like the reason that Jesus' apostles failed so much, one is because the Spirit came on them on the day of Pentecost. Don't dismiss that. That is the big deal. 
But you know the other part of it was, until Jesus rose from the dead, I don't think they ever truly grasped what their vision was. They thought their vision was an earthly vision. When Jesus was ascending into heaven, and he said, go and make, they finally realized, oh, this is our vision. And where there is no vision, people perish. And you're doing a great job of casting that vision and how you live. I just think I would be even more strategic in casting that vision. And as far as this pastor goes, uh, I'd pray for him like crazy. And uh, I'd pray that God brings revealing to him. And if the problem is in him, and if it's, I have no idea who this person is, so that's a healthy thing so I can talk real openly. And if there's sin in his world that needs to be revealed, I pray, I would just pray that God roots that sin out of your church. And I pray that that would just, that would happen. And ultimately, uh, if it continues to be a problem, then you as the youth leader of this church, if there is a kid that is harming other kids in your ministry, you can say, hey, we would love to meet with you every single week separately, but we don't want you a part of this. That's okay. And they might totally flip out. But guess what? Flip out. Our job is to raise up disciples. And there's moments and times when you have to draw lines. But I would pray like crazy first because God will work it out if we give it to him consistently. I mean, yeah. Okay. A couple more questions. Yeah, back. Yeah, for sure. Uh, I would say in most of my sermons, like uh, some of its large large group things, is we do a lot. Like the adult churches are doing it now because they're they're recognizing it's happening. We do tons of here's one choice, here's another choice. We did a series a long time ago called, called Greater Than. There's a lot of churches actually doing that series now. We did one called Gravity. So just the idea of your we we try to play the world's perspective, God's perspective, and then we play those perspectives out to their end. That. That's the thing about this generation is they are the most movable, moldable, incredible generation. I mean, they, I, I love this generation like no other generation. The kicker is sometimes their perspective is narrow because they don't see where – because they're so relational, they don't see how their relationship has consequence. And so, like, helping them draw out the future. So, like, for instance, we did a series uh, called uh, Gravity, and it's like the closer you move to God, the more, in, the, the more lit up you become. So like we literally did it based on the sun. So it's like the closer you get to the sun, the hotter, the, like it, it gets great. The closer you get to sin, the bigger it gets, the harder it gets, the more severe it gets. Like that's just true. So like if the first time it, we talked about sexuality, so we'll stay there. It's like if the first thing that is is just a thought, then that thought leads to a picture on a screen. That picture on a screen leads to a message. That message leads to another message. That message leads to a girl. That girl leads to another girl. That girl leads to a guy. That They get deeper and deeper and deeper into this thing. And the next thing you know, they're so close to this. And the gravitational pull of sin becomes greater than the gravitational pull of who God is. That's what happens, y'all. That's, that's truth. That's life. And God can still break them out of that. But the closer we get to sin, the harder it even is to hear the voice of God. And so we try to just draw those things out real clearly to them. Like, I would say a lot of our messages are like, and I would say some of it's even tongue-in-cheek with me. And it's the same with adults. It's like we think that we can control our lives by controlling our finances. Well, how well is that working for you? <laughs> we have a culture of, there. this generation struggles with anxiety at a greater capacity than any generation ever. Because they know they won't have the same lives that they've grown up with. They won't. Those days are done. And they know that, and, and they're anxious about it. They're trying to achieve, they're trying to be, they're trying to grow. And even Christian kids, we've put this weight on Christian kids to make them think they have to achieve an MI2. First, just walk with Jesus. God's not called everyone to be leaders. He's called them to be faithful servants of Jesus where they're at. He's called them all to be disciple makers. And those are things as youth pastors, we got to like, you know, we, we preach on certain things and we make, kids are going to be dumb. We, we were dumb. We are still dumb. <laughs> to think that a 16-year-old kid's not going to do dumb things, now that doesn't mean you cast stupidity upon them. You, you still call them and give them a vision of excellence, but understand in the back of your brain, your kids are going to be dumb. The kids you're going to work with are going to do dumb things. And you're going to love them through that and not make them feel the burden. Do you know most of the counseling that I do with 40 and 50-year-old men today, 
when they walk into their room, after I meet with them a couple of different times, it goes back to a time when they were 16 years old, 17 years old, 18 years old, and their identity shifted. Y'all, because they're putting too much pressure on a generation of kids. Why does the Bible talk about sins of your youth? Because he wants you to be like, eh, I was stupid. Let's move forward. And so I think that's part of it too, is just helping them see the big picture is a big deal. Other stuff, yep. I realize more and more as I'm growing up how awesome my home church was. Uh-huh. I didn't realize it at the time. Um, I'm curious your thoughts, though, on churches that get generationally pigeonholed. So my church oh, yeah. is going to extinguish in the next 20 years. Like my home church, yeah. the people who meet in that building are all going to be gone because all the kids have become missionaries. Uh-huh. But praise uh, Jesus. But, but right, and so that's that, so that's what I'm saying is praise Jesus. But meanwhile, there are people looking at our church and saying, "Well, your church is dying." You yeah. Know, like so, there's there's this idea. That yeah, that's good. If we don't hold like if we don't hold on to our kids and keep them. No, good question. I get you. I get you. That I'm just curious what your thoughts are on that. My first thought would be like first praise the Lord. Like I, and you need to know this too is small churches. Rural rural America is where most of our not only Christian leaders, but leaders in our country come from. There are studies done all the time. Dude in Dallas, Texas, to tell you that 70% of the leaders of our country and the world come out of rural places. It's because they understand hard work and they understand how to breed life versus how to live systematically. So just um, so rural America is where it's happening. It's where it's going to happen. It's where it's going to continue to happen. And most of, if you find, this is funny too, is you ask most mega church senior pastors where they're from, or mega church youth, people that are growing churches in big settings and cities, guess where they're from? Rural America. Uh, not, not always, but a lot of us. I'm, I grew up in a town of 7,000 people. I had a field in the back of my house. Okay? I'm from rural America. I drove a tractor when I was 12. I rode a motorcycle down the streets when I was 13. Like, I mean, with the flag because the cop would get mad, even though he wouldn't pull me over because he knew my dad. I mean, I, that's it's like, I'll buy you a Dairy Queen. You know, it's, but it's like, so this is what I'd say. The first thing is this is praise the Lord for that church. But this is the second thing I would challenge that church to be. It is not just about us raising up people to go. It's, it's also about reaching down into it. A church dies because they lose their primary purpose. Their primary purpose is to always reach down to a younger generation and call them to life. That doesn't diminish. My dad is 72. My mom is 71. And it doesn't diminish them. It doesn't diminish their generation. But the calling on them as 70-year-olds is the same calling that was on them as 20-year-olds. And it's always to reach down and reach down into a generation. As soon as a church stops reaching down and saying, what can we do to minister to this generation? That church is close to extinction. And so that would be my challenge is just say, you guys are the greatest church that I've ever been around. You, all your kids have left because they're missionaries, and all of us as missionary kids would say this to you. Keep doing what you used to do. Don't get stuck in who you are right now. Like, there is a generation of 20-year-olds in that community that have young kids that have no help. And guess what? That generation of 60-year-olds that raised your generation, if they will spend time with those single moms, they will spend time with those mothers and those fathers, guess where they're going to be on Sundays? In that church again. But you got to recast that vision for him. Like, it is so easy to get polit- like to get to deal with traditions versus deal with gospel. And every generation has it. You know, it, it's uh, and this isn't about music and preach. This is about when you wake up every day. What's your purpose? And it's very easy for your purpose to fall into something that's not of God. Like, the church is not a place to find comfort. It's not a place to just go and listen and learn like where in, where is that it's not present like the church was always a place to mobilize people to be transformed agents in their community that's the purpose of church but because we've become so corporate standardized systemized and whatever we have we have gathered people to ourselves and think that this works and here's part of the problem is the generation of – this is where our church is at, Southeast Christian Church. What we did really worked, ob- obviously. I mean, you walk in, it's like, geez, like this is huge. And the truth is it not only worked that way, but this church in the last seven years has given $81 million away to missions. 20%, basically 20% of this budget goes to global things. We don't tell that story enough. We should because it's a big deal. 
But there's more missionaries come out of this place like crazy. It's a beautiful, beautiful bride. But guess what's going to happen? If we don't recognize it, we've got to reach down to a 20-year-old generation because they're not here right now. If we don't realize we're going to reach down to that generation, this church is on a slow path. It's a slow fade. But this church, all it has to do is turn its direction away from itself and what used to be successful to a generation that needs Jesus. And guess what? Boom, the wheels are going to roll again. So that's every church. Uh, and the cool thing is, is they were successful. Like this boomer generation and the greatest generation ever were incredibly successful. Pat them on the back. Guess what? Remotivate them, point them in a new direction. That's what they need. They want to be used. Like my dad doesn't need to do it his way. He just wants his word to be heard. He wants to be valued. And then he wants to be put on mission again. That's what he wants. Is there a place for our generation to speak that to the older generation? Oh, I think for especially a generation of kids that are missionaries when you come back. Yeah, I think to speak it into your parents, to speak it into the people that you love. And you're not saying this out of animosity. That's not your heart. I can Humility diffuses every situation, bro. Like, if they recognize humility, they'll go with you. It's The problem is they have some... They hire some pastor for some random place that they have no value in. He has no value in them. And he comes in and tries to boss them around. They're like, peace out, brother. You are not us. You're them. You can speak into them. I'm late. It's 9.02. If you want to leave, you can. If you still want to ask questions, I'll stick around for a couple minutes. You guys are awesome. Appreciate you. Enjoy this conference. It's going to be great. So.